Welcome to Loving the Christ Life. Hi, I'm Brad Wilson, and as Warren Litzman would love to say, it is broadcast time again. Thank you for being with us on another great venture into The Cross, the special study that Warren Litzman is presenting. These are from our archives, and uh, this was from a live conference that he had, I believe, in South Africa. Let's get right into it. This is part number 13 Warren Litzman and the cross. The spirit that he had at the cross is the same spirit that's in you and I. And it is only by viewing what happened to the spirit in him that we know how to handle the spirit that's in us. You say, I can't be Jesus. You don't have to. He already is Christ in you. But you can give him a mind. Always remember The Christ in you has no mind but your mind. It is a mindless Christ that lives in the believer until you give him your mind. Where do we get the mind of Christ? Well, that statement tells us we have available the mind of Christ. It is available. How? By viewing his reaction to this world, the outer things that he did, the cross is the most notable place to view. That's the greatest trial. That's the most stressed situation we have looking at Jesus. That's when the circumstance is down to its bitterest point. And it is there that we see the Spirit of Christ. And that's the same Spirit that's in you and I. Christ in us. Christ in us. But then it is necessary that we move from the outer things that Jesus saw on the cross to what really was happening in him, the inner man. You see, there's an outer man and an inner man. Let's take a look at the inner man on the cross. You can't really get a good look at the inner man on the cross if you don't know John 17. Don't turn there. That's a whole chapter called the Lord's Prayer. But what is strategic in John 17 is his relationship with the Father. What's happening on the inside of him? I can talk about him loving the Roman soldiers, loving his enemies, loving the dying thieves. But what's really happening inside of it? Where does that kind of love outwardly come from? It comes from an inner force. What is that inner force? His love for the Father. I don't know how to say it in any plainer words, but if you have a problem in manifesting love and forgiveness to others, don't look at yourself. Look at the Christ in you and his relationship with his Father. It is that love. What does he say in John 17? Father, I want them to be one with me as I'm one with you. What does that mean? That means that only in our oneness with the Father are we able to really manifest outwardly love to others. You've got to love God. He said, well, I love God. Do you love God as Jesus? in you 
loves God? Have you died out to yourself? And when you say, I love God, no, you're dead. I'm crucified with him. I'm dead. But I still live because of him. So it isn't my love, really. It's his love. My love isn't worth a nickel or a penny. It isn't worth anything. But his love manifested to the Father is what is in me. And it is out of that love that I'm able to embrace you and love you in any circumstance. What do you think his mind was on? I talk about Jesus and thieves and Roman guards, his mother, John, Peter off on a hillside, Judas out hanging himself. You think his mind was on all that? No. You know what his mind was on? A time passed before the world started. Let's say the father was drawing up a plan. It was a plan to fill up his house. I'm going to fill up my house with children. What had happened to make him want a house full of kids? Quite simple. He had had a bunch of angels and archangels living in his house, and one of them decided that he was bigger than God and tried to throw God out of his own house along with a third of the angelic host God had to kick Lucifer out of his own house and put him down here on this earth. So he had a house empty. Now his relationship with Lucifer was very keen. Over in Isaiah, he called Lucifer the son of the morning. Well, that gave me a little insight as to what was happening in the house of God at this time. Oh, Lucifer had been so placated by God over in, in Ezekiel uh, 28 chapter and around there, you'll find about how rich Lucifer was. God had given him everything. He owned everything. He was empowered to rule over everything. Why? God treated him just like a son. He wasn't a son. He was a created being. Created beings are not sons. A son must be birthed by a father. A father must put his seed in them in order for there to be a son. Lucifer was never a son of God, but he was called that. And I always wondered, why was he called that? It's simple. God wanted a family so badly. And so when he drew up the plan, this was what was in his mind. I'm never again going to fill my house up with a bunch of created beings because I can't trust them. He couldn't trust Lucifer and a third of the angelic host. So he said, I'll never fill my house up again with a bunch of created beings. I'm going to birth my own children. They're going to be mine. They're going to have my seed in them. They're going to have my nature in them. I'm going to have a family of my own. Well, the question comes up. Are you going to create a family of your own just to be yours? No, that isn't what I want. Personified love. God is love. The love of God dictated how the plan would be drawn up. He could not create sons to love him. 
If he did that, that would violate the kind of love he is. His is uncompromising, unfailing love. So he couldn't, in the plan, draw up somebody to love him. If they loved him, it must be free will. So let's imagine God and Jesus were talking. Maybe the Holy Spirit was there. And Jesus said, if you don't create them, how are you going to get them to love you? Ah. He said, I'm going to let sin, I'm going to let that devil that caused havoc here in my house be a part of the plan. I'm going to let him turn people against me. I'm going to let him use people to disobey me. I'm going to let the humans that I create come to a desperate end. I'm going to let them see by following Satan they cannot do what is right within themselves. I'm going to prove my point. And then he said, the time is going to come when I'm going to buy, breed, birth the family I want. But I can't do it unless somebody pays the price to take care of all the sin and shame that's happened to prove my point. We have 4,000 years of Bible and five dispensations in that 4,000 years, all of which God used each dispensation to prove that men within themselves could not cease to sin and could not love God. All this is taking place there in heaven, right after Lucifer, I assume, has been kicked out of heaven. The Lord is working out a plan to fill up his house. So Jesus looked over at him and said, Well, Father, how are we going to take care of their sin? How are we going to, how are we going to make new people out of them that love you? Ah, Father said, You're the only one that ever loved me. You're the only one I could ever trust. And so he said, At some point, I'm going to take your spirit and put it in them. Ephesians 1 and 4, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ah, but Jesus might have said, Father, what right do you have to put my spirit in them? Because if you do that, they'll love you as much as I love you. The father said, I'm going to need somebody to die for their sins. Oh, is that what's lacking? Is that what is needed? Jesus said, well, father, I'll gladly do that. I'll gladly die and take care of their sin. 
So at that moment, in God's plan and God's mind and in the mind of Christ, Jesus was killed, bearing the sin and the shame of the humans that could not love God within themselves. The plan was written out in heaven. Only two verses of Scripture tell us about the plan. But now he hangs on the cross. As he hangs on the cross, what do you think his mind is on? Foremost. What's the big thing on his mind? Shed blood, hurt, pain, forgiveness? No. The big thing on his mind is the plan. We've come to the strategic part of the plan because the moment I'm dead, the Father makes me a seed and puts me inside of every believing sinner. in a new life. This is all necessary. This is all this has to take place. That's what's on his mind. That's what's working in him inwardly. It's that meeting before the foundation of the world that he had with the Father where he knew he was going to be killed. It's happening. It's taking place. That's what's inside of him. That's what he's thinking about. So the prayer he prayed in John 17 takes us to this vivid relationship that Jesus had with the Father. Over in Matthew 27, Verse 37, and they set over his head his accusation written, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. King of the Jews, that's what I want you to see. He's the king to those on earth. He's a lamb to heaven. What's going through his mind at that time? I can't be king till I'm a lamb. So he is overwhelmed by the responsibility that is his at that moment. Go back to John chapter 19. Verse 30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. 
and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. What is finished? The life of Jesus of Nazareth? No. Being son of God? No. What is finished? The lamb that was slain at the original meeting in the Father's house. The plan is finished. No new word will be added to it. It's finished. It's finished because the previous word was, it was accomplished. It was accomplished by his death. And now it is finished. The plan is finished. There's not going to be another thing added to it. The plan is finished. To fill up the father's house, the plan is finished. For the father to have his own birth children is finished. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross gave to God the right to do what was necessary to have his own children. It's finished. You can't add to it. And all of the feverish, feeble, unbelievable things we've done in religion to try to finish it have made fools out of us. It's finished. You can't add to it some doctrine. Some Pentecostal said, well, one thing to be saved, another thing to talk in tongues, so we don't believe you're saved till you talk in tongues. No, sir. It was finished. Romanism says, do you take our catechism and pay your dues? It isn't finished. But it is. I could go down the list of everybody that's tried to add a finishing note to it. There is none. Except this. It's finished. What's finished? Everything they planned in that meeting. Paul will say on two different occasions, you can't kill him again. It's finished. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. You can duck people in water till they're waterlogged. But it was finished. <laughs> You can join everything from the Elks Lodge to some kind of church building, but it's finished. Doesn't matter where you go to church, it's finished. Doesn't matter what you believe, it was finished. Doesn't matter what your doctrine is, it's finished. It got finished on that cross. You understand that? Somebody can't come along and say, now we have a very beautiful picture of what Christianity is. No, sir, it was finished. It was finished on that Golgotha hill. It was finished in the midst of anger, bitterness, hatred, greed, murder, blood, pain and suffering. That's where it was finished. You can't dress it up. You can't make it look better. You can put a steeple on the building and that won't change it. You can put a gold dome on the building and that won't change it. You can say we've got more believers than anybody else and that doesn't change it. It was finished on that cross. 
Well, he finished. You understand that? This is why we call it the Christ life. His life was finished there. There's no more to add to it. There's no more he can do. It's finished. It's a finished. It's over. It's complete. Get it fixed in your mind. You don't need a new church building with new doctrines and a new preacher. It was finished. You don't need somebody pushing you out to be an activist for Christ. It was finished. The world can accept it or reject it. The sinner can believe it or go to hell. It's finished. I always hear somebody pitifully say, how could God send anybody to hell? Take a look at the cross. That's where the plan was finished. It'll be a simple thing for God to send somebody to hell. When God looks at religious people and sees them unable to comprehend turning Jesus down as Savior, rejecting his salvation, you think, well, how could God send them to hell if he's personified love? i tell you about God. You know what he hears? Every time somebody has something critical to say about Jesus and Christianity, you know what God hears? He hears that whistling sound of that scourge in the judgment hall coming against the back of Jesus. He hears the pounding of the nails into his hands. He hears what his son had to go through to bear sin of over 4,000 years and the sin from now on to the end. Now, it won't be hard for him to send anybody to hell. In fact, God doesn't send people to hell. People choose to go there. Whosoever believeth shall not go to hell, and whosoever believeth not goes to hell, paraphrasing the scripture. So God never sent a soul to hell. Personified love wouldn't do that. But if you choose to continue without Christ, that's your choice. You say, well, I'm so dumb and ignorant, God shouldn't send me to hell. He still hears the sound of the death of Jesus Christ in your behalf. And God forgive us for not preaching this gospel more. God forgive us for not laying it out clearly. Sinners may stand before God and say we didn't know, and the responsibility fall back on us for how shall they hear without a preacher or teacher. But dear friends, it's finished on God's part. I may not finish my part of getting every place I ought to get to. You may not do all you need to do to tell the world about this Jesus, but God's finished his business. It's finished. How is he going to know that anybody's saved? goes all the way back to Egypt of old. When he sees the blood, 
He knows it's finished. When he sees the blood. Not when he sees us straightened out. Not when he sees us perfect. Not when he sees us holy or righteous. When he sees the blood. See? When he sees the blood. So you see, we have this very precious thing of what inwardly is happening to Christ on the cross. He's tying it all up. Now those in the kingdom message were so filled with the doctrines of the kingdom that dated all the way back to Abraham that they could never break up any part of that and put the cross in it like it ought to be. And the first text I gave you where was the Galatians 6 and 12 was that they had rather you look outwardly good. That you have an outer form that looked good because that fit whatever the church believed. But they were afraid that they would be working against the cross and they'd be persecuted. That's where the church is today. They want you to look good and act good and be good. But you're not saved by that. You're saved by what Jesus did and by nothing you do. So what was in his mind when he hung on the cross? He thought about his mother. He thought about the dying thief. He thought about the Roman soldiers. He forgave them. But deep inside of him, there was something going on between him and the Father's plan. So that the second thing I told you that was the most cruel thing in the crucifixion bears out my last point. The first cruel thing was when he had to take in the cup and bear all of our sins in his body. But the second cruel thing was when God darkened the world in darkness. And this Christ who was acting in unity with the Father's plan from the beginning that the Lamb would be slain, that he, Christ, loved the Father so much he would die to give the Father's plan an an opportunity to function because God could not put Christ in the human being unless he had a right to do it and he'd have a right to do it by the death of Jesus Christ bearing our old life. Jesus takes our old life, God puts new life in us, which is Christ. The death would be the means by which this was done and so they had an agreement on this. All of a sudden, the world went black, and the heavens were darkened, and Jesus realized for the first time in his existence that by the darkness of the world, he was separated from his Father. That's the 
second hardest thing for him to bear. And so he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A lot of answers have been given as to why God did this. Probably the best thing is that God could not look upon the sin that was being borne by his son. So he clothed the world in darkness at noonday and caused this supposed separation. He was not separated from the sun, but it appeared that way because all of a sudden Jesus felt the final crush of sin in his body. And the final crush was that God will have nothing to do with sin. That was hard. That was hard. So my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus told a story. Back in Luke 15 one day, the prodigal son, birth of that father, but the prodigal son takes on the image of an erring Christian, of one birthed by the father who turns to his own way and does his own thing. And there is a great message in Luke 15 of how we treat those who are lost. First, it's the woman who lost a coin and she sweeps the house, works at it till she finds the coin. But whenever this father loses his son, ironically, he never searches for him. The father doesn't go out and get the son. He knows he's in a hog pen, but he doesn't go after him. He knows that son is messed up in sin, but he doesn't go and get him out of that sin. Leaves him alone. Why? Does he quit loving him? No. Does he not care? Certainly. Then why? That's an instituted thing in the plan of God. Jesus spoke of it. And why does Jesus think God has turned on him at the cross. It's simple. He must finish. He must bring to an end what he has started. And the last crushing thing about bringing sin and death and hell and the grave and the devil's works, all of it to an end he must do it himself. So finally, Jesus doesn't even have the consolation 
of looking up through the clouds and knowing that the Father is watching it and the Father cares and the Father is interested. He's alone. Those are hard words. You've forsaken me. Not really. But he's fixed it so that he's all alone. And he bears our sins and transgressions all alone. But you know what that fixed on our behalf? As an old psychologist, I know this. That every person to truly get the fullness of God in their life must sink all the way to the bottom and come to a total end of themselves. Mothers must allow that in their sons who are erring and daughters who are in sin. They must come to the end of themselves. The drunkard will probably not be delivered until he comes to the end. The drug addict must come to the end of himself. The liar, the thief, and even the long-tongued person must come to so much trouble and trial and hurt that it could be no worse to come to the Christ that's in them. The cross should have taken over the old life, but your mind is still filled with your old way of living. And so you keep reverting back in your mind you revert back. You're not at the end of yourself yet. Somebody always says to me, how can I know that a person really is saved when they say they're saved? My answer is, when they come to the place they know they cannot save themselves. What did Christ come to on the cross? He couldn't save himself. He could perform no miracle. He could raise the dead. But he couldn't save himself. He could heal the sick. But he couldn't heal himself. He could say, Father, forgive them. But he couldn't get out of his responsibility. You got to come to the end sooner or later. You know what's wrong with people who hear this message a time or two and say, well, I understand it. I don't like it. There are people who've never come to the end of themselves. You know, People who keep searching and searching that they can find the right thing. Thank God for them. Some of them come to the Christ life. But their problem is they're selfish and they've never come to the end of themselves. You know why it takes horrible disease to straighten out people? 
because that's the only way you can get to the end of themselves. You know what I think blesses God most from us? Is when we admit that we're nothing. It always bothered me that seven times Paul, in his writings, seven different times, says, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. Of course a dead man is nothing. But it's only when you come to the end of yourself that things really take place. So don't listen to this Christ life or read it or study it for a little while. Say, well, I just don't understand it. Your problem's still yourself. You're not at the end of yourself because I'm bringing you the very message that I think was the final message of Jesus. And if I err in the scriptures, tell me so. If I fail to bring you the truth, tell me so. Because I have nothing to live for but to give you the plain, unadulterated truth about this Jesus Christ who is our life. I have nothing to gain from it. I leak I seek no following. I seek no big crowd. I seek no money. I seek nothing but to tell you the truth about this. I want the truth to be known. And the truth is, you're not going to come to the fullness of Christ until you come to the end of yourself. You are already at the end of yourself by the cross. We went through that in the first night. You're already to God at the end of this of yourself because he doesn't recognize you aside from Christ. But you're not at the end of yourself in your mind yet. So you keep on doing the same old things you've done, believing the same old way. It'll be that way. And I'm going to tell you, when you get to the end of yourself, the heavens are going to be darkened separation is going to feel like it's taking place. The father doesn't care. He doesn't come after you. But he's waiting for that one moment where you come back to him as a Christian, as a Christ son. So when you're searching for truth, God doesn't come after you. That's like Jesus taught of the prodigal son. God didn't go after you. God doesn't go after us. We're already his. But he lets us go to the end, to the bottom. Most of us have been dug out of hog pens. How do we get out? Because we quit trying to save ourselves and had a brilliant thought. I'm so much better off in the Father's house than I am in this hog pen. What a brilliant understanding that is. You'd be so much better off on your way to the Father's house than you are where you are now, including church entity, preachers, doctrines, and even signs, wonders, and miracles, you'd be much better off by getting up and going to the Father's house.
How do we do that? Get in the plan. Get in the Father's plan and see it work in our lives. Well, our time is up for today. I promise, though, next time we'll pick up right here where we left off on uh, the cross, the study from Warren Litzman that is absolutely fantastic. Now, let me remind you, this broadcast is being made possible through the Christ Life Fellowship. Please go to the website and check it out, christ-life.org. Read all about us and be sure and visit our bookstore. Our thanks to Robbie Litzman for allowing us to go into the archives each week to bring you these wonderful broadcasts. Valerie Hill does our Twitter account. Tammy Laycock does the weekly podcast notes. And the program is produced weekly by the wonderful Teresa Ferraro from the Christ Life Fellowship. Until next time, I'm Brad Wilson, loving the Christ life.